We're going to open up to Matthew chapter 14. Last week we did get through chapter 13. Fortunately, I realized that last week and the week before, we had no uh, recording <laughs> of that. So, um, hope you were here. If you weren't, it's lost to the ethereal. So, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 14. We do want to recap just briefly from Matthew chapter 13. What we concluded with and what we finished in Matthew chapter 13 was the testimony of Jesus going to his hometown and being rejected. Um, And we talked about how he was the hometown hero who did not get a hometown hero's welcome. Um, Instead, he was kicked out and ridiculed and said, who's this guy that he should be talking to us? Isn't he just the carpenter's son? I mean, what about it? Why, why should we really trust or take him at his word? And we talked about how great of a wound that was for Christ because in that particular case and really in none other, Christ didn't do any miracles. It says he would not, could not do any miracles in that place because of their unbelief. And we said, man, that must have been a significant moment because there's plenty of other times where Pharisees are calling him Beelzebub's puppet and all this stuff. He still did miracles. But when his hometown family, friends, neighbors who's grown up with him rejects him outright, he says, I I can't do anything here. I'm done. And he leaves. That's a pretty deep wound. And we talked about how we need to view Jesus. Okay, I know it seems very simplistic, but we need to make sure that we don't have a kind of, oh, that's just Jesus, I've grown up with him kind of a view. We've all been in the church for a long time. We've all been here. We all say we're Christians. I mean, there's a lot of people, especially on TV, that say they're Christians. I think you could you could just say that categorically, okay? Now, I can then line up their actions and go, they really aren't. But, um, you know, they, they say, I'm a Christian. I, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. I grew up in the South. I have to be a Christian. You're born a Christian if you were born in the South. So we've grown up with Jesus. Jesus has kind of been in our hometown for a long time, but... Do we kind of reject him in that same way? Oh, that's just Jesus. That's just love your neighbor. I've heard that so many times. That's just husbands love your wife like Christ loved the church. Yeah, I know. I know that's part of my vows. I've grown up with this kind of stuff. We want to make the point, though, as he talked about there, the parable of the householder who brought forth things that were old and new. How we wanted to last week make an impression on us to look at everything new and not as just something old we've grown up with. Love your neighbor is not just something that we go, oh, yeah, that's one of those things Jesus said. Isn't it so cool? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll think about it this week. Husbands, love your wives. Oh, yeah, I know I'm supposed to do that, but really, I mean, come on. We've been married for so long. Things have gotten so old and tired. It's not as fun and as exciting as it was when we were young and we didn't have kids. And maybe now it's time. I mean, what what is love anyway? I mean, can't you fall out of love? What is husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church? You think Christ looks at the church and goes, look, I've been dealing with y'all for a very long time. I've been married to you for a very long time. And let's just be honest. You were less than glorious of a bride when I found you. I've been dealing with you and listening to you murmur and complain and do everything I told you not to do for a long, long time. We're racking up at 2,000 years now if you're not taking into everything in the big eternal sense of things. 
Christ still loves the church just like it was day one. It's new to him every morning. As the blessings of God, as the Proverbs and Psalms would say, the blessings of God are new every morning. You say, oh, well, I woke up and it's the same old breath, the same old air, the same old life, the same old wife, the same old children, the same old, same old, same old every morning. Nothing's changed. I woke up and look, I'm still in this same old bed. I still have my same old back and it still hurts the same old way it's been hurting the last 20 years. God says his blessings are new every morning. You want to know why? Because every morning you wake up, it is a gift of God. And not just because you look at it and go, oh yeah, it's a blessing. It's because we don't deserve it. We broke the law, people, way back when. We deserve to die and go to hell. And we're not this morning, thankfully, amen. It's a blessing. So it's new. Every morning we get up, it's new. We need to view it that way. So we talked about how everything needs to be renewed. Husbands, renew your love for your wife. It's not something that you get to get away with. They go, oh, well, things are, well, she just, it's just not as like it used to be. Well, get over it. There's no excuse there. There's no option there to go, oh, well, I mean, it's just not like it used to be. I'm not as happy as I used to be. Well, that's probably your problem. Get over yourself and get back to loving your bride like Christ commanded you to do because that's what he told you to do. Are we Christians or are we not? Wives, reverence, honor, respect, love your husbands. New, renew it. Oh, well, he's not. I know. I can just admit. I know he doesn't look as good as he did 20 years ago. Okay. Women age very gracefully. Men age very agedly. Okay. Now, there's something like a fine wine getting better as it gets older. That's a wife. That's a woman. Okay. Men just turn to vinegar. All right. And that's all we get. There's old, sour grapes that nobody wants to use except to clean toilets with. It's not anything beautiful about it. And yet, the bride loves and adores her husband. And then we talked about from a single standpoint, because everybody's like, oh, in the church, everybody talks about you're either married or going to be married, and we need to talk about all marriage and all this stuff. And that's true, and there's a big portion of that, but there's also a big portion of singleness that exists, and it's just as glorious. That's what Paul, I mean, he wrote a chunk of scripture about it, okay? And even in the singleness, you are technically not singled. You're married to your husband, Jesus Christ. Love him new every morning. Renew that relationship every morning. Get intimately involved with him every day. It's new. It's not old. So then we move into chapter 14. An interesting section of scripture we're going to read just a little bit. Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Everybody open up your Bibles and read along with me. Let you know I'm not making it up. Chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. Notice how that's a present tense there. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him, that would be John, as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she being before instructed of her mother, Herodias, that is, said, Give me here John Baptist's 
head in a charger. That would be on a plate for all of us non-socially inclined. And the king, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat. That means that he was sad because he made this promise in front of a bunch of people, and now he can't go back on it. He commanded it to be given her, and he sent and beheaded John in prison. And his head was brought in a plate and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Now, there's a lot in this section of Scripture. Okay, There's a lot of stuff in this. Lots of things that can be drawn out. I think every time as we've been going through this book, I see new stuff and kind of revel in the new stuff that I find in it every time I read it. You know, sometimes we take it at face value. Sometimes we read just the story as a historical aspect. But we want to dive a little bit deeper in this as we have been doing um, throughout the whole book. First, we need to ask the question, who is Herod the Tetrarch? Okay. Tetrarch wasn't his last name, by the way. Herod technically wasn't his first name. All right. So Herod is just a title. King, Caesar, Pope. All right, Herod is just the title. There was a guy named Herod the Great. That would have been this Herod's father. Okay, and Herod the Great was the king of Jerusalem before Herod the Tetrarch was a ruler. So Herod the king, all right, this man's daddy, was the one who, if you remember back in Luke, and if you remember back um, when Jesus was born, there was a Herod who was greeted by the three wise men, or however many wise men you want to put in there, was greeted by the wise men. The wise men came up to Herod the king, who was king of Judea, and said, we desire to see the king of the Jews who's been born this evening. And he said, oh, that's interesting, because I thought I was the king of the Jews. Where is this guy, and where is he supposed to come from? And they said, oh, don't you remember? Read back in your Bible, Herod, you know, ruler of the Jews. You should know that. Anyway, he's born in Bethlehem. All right, wise men, go to Bethlehem, and when you find him, let me know, because I really want to meet this guy. Sure you do. So Herod the king then is deceived by the wise man because, you know, God reveals to the wise men, go back home a different way because Herod's going to do something bad. You better go back another way. They do. And then Herod finds out a little bit later, hey, you tricked me. So tell you what, I'm just going to murder every child two years and under in the city of Bethlehem. And we'll just nip this in the bud. That was Herod the Great. That's King Herod. That's the Herod whose daddy of this Herod, the Tetrarch. So a wonderful family, these Herods, okay? Great people. And if you remember the way that Jesus escaped that death sentence as the angel of the Lord came to Mary and Joseph and said, take him into Egypt. He goes into Egypt, spends a few years in Egypt. And then after Herod, the king had died, they then go back into Judea. But then, of course, they make a little detour up to Nazareth because they heard of his son, Archelaus, Herod, Archelaus, who was ruling in his stead, and said, nope, I don't think we're going back there. And so they go up to Nazareth. And again, this all fulfilled prophecy, but it also was real, okay? But this all being said comes down to who is this Herod, the Tetrarch, okay? Tetrarch there means rulers of three. Tetra, tet, okay, three. And so there was three rulers here. You had Herod... Archelaus, you had Herod Antipas, you had Herod Philip, okay? And there's one here that's mentioned in Luke chapter 3, Herod Lysanias, or I'm sorry, yeah, Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, okay? 
So there's a little bit weird historical stuff going on there. But there were three of them that ruled over the areas of Judea, of Galilee, and then of the eastern area kind of of Decapolis where, if you remember, we've been talking about this. This is where Matthew has been talking about Jesus running around this whole time. All this area of Galilee in the northern area. Well, that was Herod Antipas. Okay, that was his neck of the woods. That's where he hung out. That's where John was preaching. That's where John was baptizing on the Jordan. And that's where John ultimately came to blows with this Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas ruled from about 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. And it is this Herod that we're talking about here who was arresting John for his preaching. It's also noteworthy to remember that Herod Antipas is the one that Pilate sends Jesus back to when Pilate arrests Jesus. Remember in the story in Luke, you know, uh, Pilate arrests Jesus and then Pilate goes, oh, well, I really don't want to deal with this. Oh, you're from Galilee? That's Herod Antipas's neck of the woods. You need to go up there and be judged by him. And of course, Herod was all geeked out about that because Herod wanted to meet Jesus. And then he ultimately makes fun of him, kicks him back out. It's also interesting to note that in Acts chapter 4, when Luke is recounting this, Herod is put right up there with Pilate as being the two people who were partially responsible for Jesus' death. So again, he's not an innocent guy. He's not a nice guy. And here in chapter 14, he has arrested John because John had a little problem with what Herod was doing. So in verse 4, you get the key as to why John was arrested. He had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have Herodias, who is your brother Philip's wife. Okay, Not was your brother Philip's wife, is your brother Philip's wife. Okay, And also, Herod Antipas, more than likely, you already had a wife. So John has called him out for this. So that's what's going on in this story. John the baptizer, who all we really get of his story is what happens at the Jordan. Okay, And then what happens while he's in prison. Not a lot of in-between there. You don't know what he's doing. All you see is that in the beginnings of nearly every gospel account, you have John out there baptizing according to prophecy. He was going to come prepare the way of the Lord. He was going to preach the righteousness of the kingdom, repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's John's thing. That's what he did. And then Jesus gets baptized and you kind of go, okay, what happened to John? Well, maybe he passed off the scene. Maybe he, you know, went into retirement. Maybe, uh, you know, who knows what happened? Well, we see that John is still preaching. And he's apparently preaching on some controversial subjects to some controversial people. So you ask, why, why would John do? Why would John challenge Herod Antipas? Why would he go up to him and say, Herod, it is wrong for you to have your brother's wife? Why is he picking that battle? I mean, John looked like he had the whole. Crazy prophet thing going. He was hanging out by the river wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and, you know, baptizing people. I mean, he had his ministry on lockdown. Nobody was like him, okay? Nobody did things like he did. Right? He was unique. He had his own disciples. We meet those in Acts. You know, I mean, he, he had a thing going. Why rock the boat? John, man, you had it good. But he did. He challenged him. He expressed, you know, John's express purpose according to scriptures was to herald the coming christ 
In fact, that's what his disciples in the book of Acts would kind of get called back to is they would be asked, do you believe in Christ? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And they say, we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. And they're saying, well, why not? Because that's what John was telling you. You need to follow Christ when Christ comes. Well, I'm here and I've come. And what are you doing? Why are you still following John? His whole purpose was to herald the coming of the Christ, to preach baptism of repentance and the coming of the kingdom. So how did rebuking Herod fit into this theme? Why would he rebuke Herod? I, mean, just, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Why was John in this situation? Was John like trying to baptize Herod and then said, oh, well, you got some stuff in your past we really need to talk about. And why, why did this happen? Well, if you look back, and it may seem weird at first glance, but if you look back at kind of how John did things, this is actually kind of in line with what he's been doing the whole time. When you look back in Luke chapter 3, and you can turn there with me because we've got to read a, a little chunk there. But in Luke chapter 3, when he begins his ministry, it says... In verse 7, then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. Now, in this account, he just says the multitude. In other accounts, he says the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, okay, that came up. And he looked at them and says, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones, literal rocks, to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. That would be you. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn or cut down and cast into the fire. Now, that is a targeted bullseye sniper shot right at the religious elites who had come to be baptized of him. And he looked at them and said, why are you here? In fact, he says, you generation of vipers, why are you here? That phraseology is repeated by Jesus when Jesus looks at him and says, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? These people were not good folks, okay? But they were religious leaders. These were the Pharisees. These were the ones, their very name meant holy. And Jesus and John both look at him and say, your heart is less than holy. But he calls him out. He doesn't care. John doesn't care. I mean, I think we can tell by his demeanor and his wardrobe, he doesn't care. All right. I mean, I don't know if I've ever really thought about why he came the way he did. But I mean, you can translate that very well. And it may be kind of extrapolating out of the scripture something that's not there. But let's think about it. You look at people who walk through Walmart and you go, they really do not care. You look at people who walk around sometimes and go, they don't care. They don't care what anybody thinks about them. And that's obviously by the way they dress. All right. And I'm not talking about people who are in rags and tags. There's some people who go there in their pajamas. There are people who go out in their, you know, workout pants when they ain't never worked out. Come on now. That's why I don't wear workout pants. You want to know why? Because I don't work out. So for me to wear them would look odd and silly. Okay. In fact, I think I've tried on a pair of like biking pants one time for Emily because I said I was going to start riding a bike and she just looked at me like, you really shouldn't do that. You really should not. You do not look anything like a biker. All right. And I'm talking about like, you know, bipedal biker. Okay. 
Definitely don't look like a biker biker. That's why I don't wear leather jackets, okay? But obviously, John did not care. He's wearing camel's hair outfits. He's eating locust, all right? It's not like they were in some kind of dearth of food, okay? Now, they didn't have a 7-Eleven, but they had food, all right? He didn't care. He's eating locust. Locust and honey, man. Digging on that. And everybody's going, oh, would you please quit eating the crickets? That's just pretty gross. Put on something different. Your camel hair outfit in the hot, wet sun, all right? Probably doesn't smell all that good. He don't care. He's got a purpose. He's got a mission. He's doing what God called him to do the way that God called him to do it. You got to imagine at some point that he's asking God, God, seriously, like a camel hair jacket? Why that? He doesn't care. He's doing it. And in line with that, he looked at these religious elites who, in any other situation, you'd want to kind of please these people. I mean, that's why you see Nicodemus come to Jesus at night. You know, it says he came to him at night. Why? He was afraid of the religious leaders. You have all these other Jews that's recorded through the Gospels who would not come right out and say that they believed in Jesus because it said they feared the religious leaders, that they would be kicked out of the synagogues, they would be ostracized, they'd be cut off. John's going, you got to repent. You got to believe. You gotta, if you're going to come be baptized, you got to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. This isn't just a do it because everybody else is doing it and it's cool. This is a real thing. Either repent or don't get in that water. You generation of vipers. Who are you calling, who are you calling vipers, John? Don't you know who we are? We are the Pharisees. We embody the holiness of the law. He said, I don't care who you are. You better repent. The axe is laid to the roots, brother. I mean, that's not... He's not mincing words. He's not being politically correct. He's laying it right out there for you. You either repent or it's going to go badly for you. He addresses the general population, leaders and laity alike. As he goes forward, he'll say... Because after that, of course, and fittingly... People came up to him and said, what shall we do then? Okay. I mean, he's sitting there looking at the Pharisees going, guys, y'all are about to get cut down and mowed low. And now all the other people are watching that going, well, well then what do we need to do? Because I, I, I don't want that to happen to me. So the people asked in verse 10, what shall we do? And he answered and said unto them, he that has two coats, let him impart to him that has none. And he that has meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans, that would be tax collectors, to be baptized and said unto him. Now, this is a proof that not all tax collectors from the IRS are bad. Okay. And said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And John said unto them, exact or take no more than that which is appointed to you. And that was their whole M.O. You know, that's how you got that job. You paid for that job. And then you got money out of that job by taking just a little bit more than what actually Rome had said you were supposed to take. Rome says taxes are $10. And you say, yeah, okay, 15 sounds good to me. Five for me, 10 for you. This is a good situation. Jesus says, no, that's called thievery. And you're not to do it anymore. The soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Basically, he is saying, Do not let your might okay, drive you to extort from people. Be satisfied with your rage, wages and do your soldiering justly, righteously, and honestly. And so this was, I mean, he's, he's been called, he called everybody out here. Religious leaders, 
whether you're a general or a private in the army, whatever it is, whether you're a tax collector over thousands of men or just a single tax collector, an individual, whatever it may be, he said, this is the way of the kingdom. Honesty, goodness, righteous, loving, compassionate people who do their jobs still, but they do them through the filter of what Jesus Christ has commanded us to do. He didn't say tax collectors, that's an unholy business, get out of it because you can't swing that. He said, no, you do what your job requires in submission to the will of God. What about being soldiers? How can I justify these two things? He said, you don't do violence. You don't purposefully rape and pillage for your own justification. You justify your works with the works of Christ. But he called them all that. He didn't give anybody an inch. So keeping in that same manner of ministry, at some point in time, he came up to Herod and said, Herod, it is not lawful for you to marry Philip's wife. That's his wife. You have your wife. Leave his wife alone. I don't care that you're tetrarch. You can't do that. That's against the law. What law was he speaking of? Well, Herod was a ruler. I, I almost said king. He's not king. He tried to be king and he couldn't. He tried to rule as the single, but he can't. He's a tetrarch. He's one of three, but he was the ruler of the Jewish people. And he ruled them supposedly or, you know, trying to be as Jewish as he could. He really wasn't a Jew. He came from actually a Canaanite family, but he tried to rule the Jews. He was their representative, their governmental representative. Well, you expect it to be for the people. Well, the people were Jews. So if you're going to be the Jewish king and rule over Jewish people, according to Jewish law, then you have to do what Jewish law says. And Jewish law says you cannot just divorce this woman and grab another wife, especially your brother's wife. That's kind of a big faux pas. But Herod did it anyway. He didn't care. And you get from the story that Herodias doesn't really care either. Herodias is actually mad at John, not at Herod Antipas. He's actually mad at John because John has brought this to light and called us out. How dare he call out the situation that we have here? We are two mature adults and we have chosen to do this. And therefore, no one should be able to tell us we're wrong for doing this. That doesn't sound familiar, does it? But the biggest takeaway that you get is that no matter who it is, no one is exempt from the authority of the kingdom of God and the righteous decrees of God. Nobody is exempt from that. Nobody gets out from under that. Nobody gets to go, oh, well, but I get to do it my way today. No, it's always God's way or it's the wrong way. Okay, that's just the end of it. There is no argument about that. There's no quibbling. There's no debates about that. That is just the reality of existence because we exist because God allows it to be so. Okay, so in this way, he says, nobody's exempt. Herod, I don't care that you are the ruler of Galilee. You are in the wrong and you cannot take Herodias for your wife, for your wife. That's pretty, you got to give it to John. That's pretty bold, John. Now this is going to get into some stuff that we really need to think about, especially in today's time. I can't tell you how much we've been going through this. I've just been like, good gracious, this is so 
so, so relevant, okay? And probably every generation has gone, this is relevant, okay? It's my turn to go, this is relevant. This is extremely relevant for all of us to grasp this morning. It is the duty of all representatives of the kingdom of God to represent the kingdom, okay? We agree on that? To elevate the kingdom above all other kingdoms and to preach and live the principles of the kingdom above all other principles. This means that our duty and loyalty and allegiance is to the kingdom of God first and foremost. We really need to grab that. If you are a believer of Jesus Christ in here today, it is your first and foremost dedication, responsibility, and loyalty to the kingdom of God above all others. That means above all political parties, above all nations, above all nationalities, above all philosophies, whatever it may be, whatever comes along and whatever may be a nice little subcategory you can divide yourself into. You only get in those categories if they fall under the principles of the kingdom of God. It comes first. It comes foremost. There is no other thing that takes precedence to us. Do we see that this morning? Do we grab that this morning? And it's hard because we're in such a polarized society today. We're in such a po- on all sorts of different things. It's not just Republican and Democrat, even though that's big in front of everything. Okay, it's not just that. I mean, you're polarized on all sorts of different things, all sorts of different different philosophies and ways of doing life and things coming up and one group over here and another group on this side. And because of Facebook and other things, there's no communication there goes on. There's just memes. Okay, we have devolved into an organization of people who say everything through memes. Okay, that's a made up word. I don't even know what a meme is. That's how you're communicating. It's through something that was made up because of Twitter. You know, we have like compendiums of English language and volumes and things like Shakespeare. And that used to be, I mean, that's how you'd say this Bible was written to communicate. And we're communicating through memes. Do you see how a step off the cliff that is? That's like going from writing in Shakespeare to communicating with stick figures in crayon. But not like goofy things, like world life altering philosophies through crayon. So we have to be careful that you don't get sucked into that. And if that means you need to get off Facebook and Twitter, you need to get off Facebook and Twitter. All right. Just get if you can't scroll through that feed and not get aggravated by everything else somebody else has posted and feel this kind of I don't know what it is some kind of gut reaction reflex to post something back that is not glorifying to the kingdom of God you need to cut it okay let me just go ahead and tell you this take a month off and just see how much better you feel all right just let it go I have resolved now I still use Facebook and I say it this way I use Facebook for a specific purpose and usually that is to communicate things about the organizations I participate with okay that's about it I don't know anything else you want to know why because it's filled with stupidity I think we talked about this on a Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago you know there is a beautiful proverb out of the book of Proverbs coincidentally enough that says 
paraphrasing, basically, any fool can start an argument. So just stop right there and meditate on that. Any fool can start an argument. Any foolish person can post a meme to start a fire on Facebook. The children of God are called peacemakers. Not foolish, ignorant fight starters. Peacemakers. If your posts aren't spreading peace, you aren't representing the kingdom of God. I know I am fired up about this. And I know you can tell that. But it is so crucial. Because what happens is you start spiraling off of that. Now all these people you're posting memes about are just ignorant, stupid people who don't deserve your, you know, great grand wisdom you gained by posting that made up picture of LeBron James with some quirky little quote under it, okay? Instead of viewing them as we have been talking about for weeks and months now, they are children of God made in the image of God. That's our view. That's nobody else's view. That's our view. And we're sacrificing it so we can be funny or quirky or whatever it may be on Facebook. That is a low, low achievement bar. We are called to grand eternal things, the high prize of the calling of Jesus Christ. And we're settling for Facebook success. Give me a break. Let's go. Let's let's grab what we have been promised. So it is our duty, loyalty, and allegiance to the kingdom of God first and only. If you can't jive with that on what you're doing, then you need to cut it out. This goes back to what Jesus was saying previously. If your right hand is offensive, then you need to cut it off. If you can't control it, if you can't seem to get over it, if your right hand keeps getting you in trouble, you would be better to amputate it than to let it drag you down. If your eye offends you, you better just cut it on out. Now, I'm not really, I mean, I got scalpels and we could do it anesthetically and clean if you want to. But I'm not saying that. I mean, I, yeah, we can, we can cut stuff off if you really want to. But I just say, let's go metaphorically this morning. All right. It gets so bloody and it's hard to do. And, you know, there's all this follow-up and paperwork and stuff. So let's just avoid that. But if you think about what he's saying there, he is being so, so serious about it. When you start talking about cutting arms off and cutting eyeballs out, you have moved beyond pleasant little Christian platitudes, okay? You've moved into Jesus is saying, this is a real life and death battle, and you better make preparations for it. So he's, been, he's, he's desperately serious about it. So everything we should view should be through that lens. And, and John is calling out the wickedness in the highest places in this scenario. Herod is the ruler. John has everything to lose. John has really nothing to gain from this. His movement is about to be, well, it's going to have the head of the snake literally cut off, okay? Because he's going to be done. What do you have to gain from all that, John? Don't you know that's not very good political maneuvering? That's not good for your social scheme? That's going to get you a lot of lost Twitter and Facebook followers if you go in this controversial way? 
Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesian church in chapter 6, would say this, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may able be, or may, you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Okay, And this could, needs to kind of clue you into what he's talking about. This isn't just a personal you know, battle with your own demons. Okay, He is expanding this out. But we wrestle against principalities or rulers, against powers or authorities, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Brothers and sisters, we are warriors for the kingdom of God against spiritual darkness and wickedness wherever it may be. Okay? Now, we immediately will go, yeah, I mean, that's why we're pro-life and anti-abortion. It can't just stop there. We can't put that in our hat and go, yeah, well, see, I'm, I'm against abortion, so I'm against all this governmental stuff, and I'm against the government. Yeah, that's just one. That's one thing. And it's a big thing, but that's still one. And the other side of that is we cannot acquiesce to other spiritual wickedness just because someone gives a pledge that they're not going to do abortion or maybe they're going to be against gay marriage or maybe they're going to be in Ned. one of these other big, hot, evangelical political topics. Can't just say, oh, well, that's okay. As long as you don't vote for abortion, I'll let you have as many wives as you want to have, live as adulterously as you want to have, be as fornication prone as you want to have, cuss and be nasty and everything is not Christ, but just make sure you vote the right way. No, that doesn't work. That's not what we're called to. John didn't look at Antipas and go, it should be Antipas, but John didn't look at Antipas and go, well, as long as you support good Jewish causes... I can look the other way if you want to take Herodias. I mean, in the big scheme of things, this is just one wife. I mean, people get divorced all the time. And what does it really matter? And I mean, really, with the sanctity of marriage and all this stuff, I mean, really, you're not that bad off. So did he do that? Did John acquiesce to that? Did John go, well, Herod, you've got other amiable qualities that are supporting the Jewish cause. And therefore, you know, I'll, I'll let this one slide. No, John was right there. John gave his life commanding Herod that he could not do this unlawful thing. That in the big scheme of things, you'd go, well, I mean, he's not committing genocide. You know, I mean, he's, he hadn't stolen anything. He's not committing war crimes. Nothing like that. I mean, it's just this silly little thing. You know, he's taking his brother's wife. I mean, how bad? Isn't that a personal thing? Isn't that inside their home and really nobody else should be worried about it? So the conclusion that we come to from John's testimony is that we as representatives of the kingdom representatives of the kingdom are called, commanded, equipped, okay, as kingdom representatives to call out all wickedness in all places, no matter who it may be. Now that's going to be very difficult, okay? It's going to be extremely difficult. I'm going to tell you that because I have just noticed, and one of my main reasons for withdrawing from a lot of the social media stuff is because it does not matter how honest, it doesn't matter how true to the Bible you are being, if you give a contradictory idea, 
if you give a contradictory idea, maybe one side you'd go, oh, I expect it from them because they don't believe in the Bible and they're atheists and they don't do it. Okay. That's not the ones that I worry about the most. In fact, my whole thought was them is, well, maybe they could be educated. Maybe if we brought the gospel in the way it should be brought, maybe they would see the beauty of it and not all the other stuff they see on TV. What I find the greatest wounds are from the people who you would call your friends. People who would then give all of these unbiblical arguments as to why this should be allowed or done this way. And some people who in the name of Christianity would make defenses for indefensible positions and say things like, oh, well, look, David was a flawed leader. Let me just go ahead and tell you something. There has not been a president to date that would match with David. Okay. In fact, there was not really any other people in the Bible who said they had a heart after God and had a heart like God. Okay. So using David and his flaws as some kind of justification for our leaders to be amoral but still good leaders is not a justifiable position. And that didn't come from some kind of extreme leftist position, mind you. So I'm not trying to get overly political and go back and forth and be divisive. I'm trying to tell you and hopefully impress upon you this morning, it is about us being a holy nation. And that's not America. That's the kingdom of God. Okay? We are a holy nation. We have holy leaders within our nation who then can serve in those capacities, but only if they're serving in a holy way. And that's totally holy. That doesn't mean I'm three-fourths holy and you just ignore the other fourth. And that was really good math for me, by the way. That's, that's not that you're ignoring all the stuff and say, oh, well, we accept it because, I mean, overall, you have done a good job. No, sir, that's not accepted. We are to be holy 100% and 100% of the time. That's why Peter in 1 Peter from where I'm quoting from, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar or special people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is our purpose as a holy people. And we can't do that if we're living in darkness. So now I'll try to throttle down so I don't scare the kids anymore. We will do a little kid moment here. So kids, for thir- and kids I mean 18 and under, <laughs> Brody again. Um, so kids, I want you to give me 30 seconds eye contact right quick. Okay? Because we talk about all this stuff and you go, okay, well, how does this relate to me? So just eyes up here. Okay? So I'm going to give you some really good analogies. And my son will love this the most. You are warriors for God, too. You are warriors for the kingdom of God, too. You are Ninjago Power Ranger, okay? Paul Patrol Warriors, Brody. You are warriors for the kingdom of God, and you all have a mission for God, too, to fight against the darkness that is around us. And your weapons, children, kids, under the age of 18, and maybe for adults, too, if you've forgotten... Your weapons are the word of God. Your weapons are the light of God. Your weapons are the love of God. And I think we've talked about that for the past 14 chapters. Those have come up. You are light and salt. 
The word of God is a two-edged sword able to withstand against the wiles of the devil and that you are to love your enemies and love your neighbors equally. So those are your weapons. And with these weapons, you are more powerful than any enemy out there. In fact, the Apostle Paul would say in the book of Romans that we would be called super conquerors in Christ. So we fight for the kingdom of God this week at home. We fight for the kingdom of God at school, on the playground. Now, this doesn't mean literally you go beat people up for Jesus, okay? But wherever you go this week... You are going to see the darkness in the world and you're going to say, I've got a light and I'm going to let it shine. Amen. So parents, this is your moment. This week you are to impress on your children the concepts of holiness and fighting for the holiness of the kingdom of God. Talk about why we act differently than others in this world. Bring out the realness of the kingdom to them. And that it's not just some kind of fantasy land they see on TV. But that this is a real thing. This is what we're a part of. This is how we represent the kingdom of God well. So we'll stop right there. Next, we're going to go into the rest of this, talking about what I said last week about belief in unexpected places. So last time we talked about unbelief in familiar faces. Okay, When we talked about Jesus going to his family and friends and neighbors and just expecting, hey, you at least give me an inch because you grew up with me. They don't give him anything. Here you have Herod. And we're going to find some belief in unexpected places. So we're going to talk about that this afternoon. So as we draw this to a close, let's remember that we are in a battle. We are in a fight. We are not just optionally in that battle. We are in that battle whether you like it or not. We're called to that. We're equipped to that. We're born again and made a new creature to fight in this particular fight. We're made for this purpose. And as we've been talking on Wednesday nights, as we've been talking about sacrifices and spiritual things and tying the Old Testament, which, you know, again, I, you, you do remember that like Old and New Testament and those kind of things, it's one big story, okay, from start to finish. It's one big story. And there's applications from the Old that are very much renewed again in the New. Paul and Peter and others would write about us being this priesthood. And as we talk about that on Wednesday night, which you should all come and listen to, as we talk about that on Wednesday night, we talk about the fact that we have sacrifices we are commanded to give as this spiritual priesthood. And those are to do good works and to praise God with our mouth. So as we go forward in this week, that needs to be what we do. That's how we fight this darkness. You want to put something on Facebook, put something that is God glorifying and people edifying, okay? Put something on there that encourages people that when they look around Facebook and they look around the TV on all these major news networks that spit all the same garbage just from a different spin, and you look at life and go, man, this world sucks. It's awful, and I don't want to be here anymore. And people want to kill themselves because they are so depressed about the state of their lives, whether it be the political state, their socioeconomical state, whatever it may be. People getting in desperate, deep, dark situations because they have nowhere out here showing them the gloriousness of the peace and the light of Jesus Christ. So let that be what you use Facebook for. Glorify, I know this is so contrary to even say, but if it be possible, glorify God with your Facebook account. Glorify God with your Twitter account. Glorify God with your Instagram feed. Okay? 
Glorify God with your Snapchat. I don't even know how you do that, but you probably can. Glorify God with the things that are in your life and all things that are within your life. So that circles right back around to that means husbands, you love your wives and you love them newly every morning because it is a glorifying thing of God. God gave you that wife despite the fact that you really probably didn't deserve it. Okay. So you better be glorifying God and you better be loving her as a treasure and a precious item because you know what? You don't deserve it. It's not because you're so awesome. No matter who you are, even me. I mean, I know that's hard to believe, but wives, you treasure and adore your husbands because again, I know, and I'm I'm not going to yeah, all women, I'm just going to say like all women are awesome. All women are great. All wives are amazing. You deserve everything that you get. Okay. I'll say that, but just in honesty, you don't deserve your husband either. Glorify God in loving and serving and being compassionate in the marriage relationship, husbands and wives, singles, love and adore and glorify God, your husband in everything that you do. Children, glorify and honor and love God by listening and obeying your parents who God has given you as your protectors, providers, defenders, and teachers. And parents, love and glorify God by instilling in them the principles of this kingdom that we've been preaching about. May God bless us to do that.